Okay. Our sermon text for today comes from Psalm number 14. Well, it doesn't come from Psalm 14. It is Psalm 14. So I'd encourage you to turn to Psalm 14. Obviously, it's there in the worship guide. If you have a Bible, that's good too. Or if you'd like to just listen, that's great also. We've been in this um, Well, I've given lots of introductions on the Psalms because we've been here a long time, so I'll just skip that part. We know what the Psalms are. We've been enjoying them. It's awesome. So we're just continuing along. I think this is sort of the uh, this one does change a little bit. We've kind of been in the, the what to do in a crisis psalms. Psalms 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. This one shifts away from that a little bit. So it's a little bit of a different thing. Um, but Psalm 14 is significant because it appears in the Psalter twice. It appears as Psalm 14 and then it appears again as Psalm 53 with just a few little minor differences. But it's clear that it's the same song that was recorded twice in the Psalter. So the big question is, what makes Psalm 14 or Psalm 53 so important that the the Hebrew editors that put the Psalter together, inspired by the Holy Spirit, thought we need to we need to put this one in both times. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. But before we talk any more about it, let's read it together. If you can, where you are. I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Psalm 14. For the director of music of David. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all these evildoers know nothing? They devour my people as though eating bread. They never call on the Lord. But there they are, overwhelmed with dread, for God is present in the company of the righteous. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You can be seated. Okay. Psalm 14. Let's get into it. What is so essential about this song, uh, this psalm, that it needs to appear twice. Um, well, every single psalm is essential. 
Every single one is God's word. Uh, every single bit of God's word is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's all breathed out by God. It's all useful for uh, teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the person who's following God can be equipped uh, for every good work. Uh, obviously, this is already essential. And we don't know all the ins and outs. We can't read the inner mind of the Holy Spirit of why he decided let's go around one more time with this one. Uh, but there are some things in this psalm that do stand out as, at least to me in my reading, as particularly uh, pertinent and essential for our time and place. When I read this psalm, things that's, that jump out to me and I read it and in my heart, I think, that's something for us today. We need to understand that as Charlie needs to understand that. Pope Prez needs to understand that. Christians in Portland area, uh, Christians in the world today. These are, these are big things. So I, I have four things from Psalm 14, four essential truths from Psalm 14 that I want to highlight that I really believe that God wants to show us in our time and place. So here's the first thing. We find it in verse one. Verse one says this. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. Here's here's the essential truth for today. Unrighteous people distance themselves from God. Unrighteous people distance themselves from God. But unrighteous people distance themselves from God. How do I get that? Well, first is this word fool. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They, being the fool, uh, they are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There's no one who does good. This, in our time and place in our Western culture, if you call someone a fool or think of someone as a fool, usually that means someone is intellectually or socially deficient in some way. It means that they're not smart or they make bad intellectual decisions or they might be smart, but they don't have any street smarts. They make bad social decisions. They're foolish. I think about the show, The Three Stooges. Uh, I remember my dad showing me this show when I was a kid. He thought it was hilarious. I, to be honest, I didn't really get it and I still kind of don't get it. <laughs> but these are three these are three men that are the three stooges, a perfect picture of our cultural idea of foolishness. When you get down to it, yeah, they're, they're not bad people. They're, they're just, they're just fools. Uh, they're, 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 something's missing up here and something's missing in their in relational awareness. That's kind of our cultural idea of foolishness. But when the Bible, Hebrew Bible talks about a fool, 
it's a little bit different. Um, in the Hebrew Bible, foolishness is not really an intellectual or a social deficiency. In the Hebrew Bible, a fool is someone with a moral deficiency. Now, I'm borrowing that language. That's not a phrase I came up with. I actually got it from the footnote in the NIV translation. If you have an NIV, you can see it. There's a little footnote that says, Hebrew words rendered fool in Psalms denote someone who is morally deficient. And that's really helpful. We can see this. It's also true in Proverbs. This is like a Hebrew thing. Proverbs 1-7 is a great illustration of what the ancient Hebrew mind thought of as a fool. Proverbs 1-7 says this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or the beginning of wisdom. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. A fool is someone who despises wisdom and instruction. And wisdom and knowledge come from the fear of the Lord, reverence and worship toward God. So a fool is deficient not because of an intellectual capacity, not because of social capacity, but because of the disposition of his or her heart. It's turned away from God. So back to Psalm 14, David writes, the fool, the morally deficient person, the sinner, the unrighteous person, that's the person who says deep down in his or her heart, there is no God. This is what David is saying is that unrighteous people, sinners, bad people, evil people, that thing that would characterize a person as being bad for the world and against God, the root of that doesn't come from the way somebody thinks doesn't come from the way somebody interacts, doesn't come from somebody's actions. It comes from somebody's heart, specifically the disposition of their heart, the way that their heart is either turned toward or turned away from God. This is significant. The fool The unrighteous person, the sinner, is someone who distances themselves from God. You see it? The disposition of somebody's heart. The way, the direction in which somebody chooses to point his or her heart. Or their heart is already pointed. That determines the nature of their life. That determines the way that they act. That determines the way that they interact. That determines everything. Everything goes back to the heart. The way that somebody lives, the way that somebody loves, the way that somebody interacts, all comes down to whether or not their heart is pointed at God or away from God. Now, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. This is not an intellectual atheism. This is not, hey, um, 
read the Bible, I've looked at the world, I've studied theology, and I just, I just can't, I just, I don't see it. I don't, I, I don't see God existing. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about a heart atheism. This is a person that could be outwardly religious, but in their hearts, they turn away and act as if God doesn't exist. Some people have called this practical atheism. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what you say you believe. Uh, the way that you live shows that you don't acknowledge God. And I think that term practical atheism is helpful, but I think what we see here is even stronger. This is heart atheism. Then it says that these people, these God-denying, unrighteous people who distance themselves from God, their turning away from God in their hearts is leads to such a degree of corruption that their their actions are vile and they can't even do good things. Even the good things that they do are evil. And that's pretty strong. This part where it says that there is no one who does good. Uh, that's a pretty strong statement. It, because I think that um, in a sense we can say that all people are capable of doing good. We hear stories of even the most corrupt and evil people uh, can people who do terrible things can fall in love or uh, have affection and love for their kids or maybe do a good deed every once in a while this is saying no even there's no one these heart turn away from God God denying fools they can't even do good this reminds me of uh, I've read a couple of times, once in high school and then once um, a couple summers ago, I read uh, the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass. Uh, Frederick Douglass's memoir, the great civil rights uh, abolitionist leader in the 19th century. If you've never read that, I would highly recommend it. Frederick Douglass was someone who was raised as a slave, raised in slavery went on to gain freedom and became an activist against slavery. There's two memoirs from Frederick Douglass. Uh, the first one, which is called The Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, he tells the story of his life as a slave. One of the things that stood out to me when I read that is some of his, uh, some of the slave masters under whose charge he lived during various seasons of his life, some of them were very kind people. Some were very harsh, very mean, mistreated him outwardly, but some were very kind. They seemed to treat him like a person. But Douglas highlights in his story that even the kindness of various slave masters was evil to him because they were still upholding the evil institution of slavery. The evil of the institution overshadowed the good intentions of some of the individuals in it. And when you read this story, you see from his perspective as a slave, it didn't matter if a particular slave master treated him kindly. Because in their relationship, 
he was and always would be in their eyes less than a human being because he was still their property. This is showing us something like that, that when it's one's heart is turned away from God, in the, when the heart denies God, even good things that we do are evil things. Doesn't deny that there's goodness mixed in, but even the goodness is corrupted by the evil of turning our hearts away from God. Our fancy doctrinal term for this is total depravity. That doesn't mean that somebody's everything somebody does is 100% evil, but it does mean that everything somebody does is corrupted by evil, even the good things. And that's not something that's God's fault. That's something that's the person's fault because it's the person who turns their heart from God and distances themselves from God. At least that's what it says here in the psalm. That's important for us to remember. So that's the first thing. which should lead us to ask, who are these fools? Who are these unrighteous people? Who are these people who turn themselves away from God? And the psalmist gets right to it, and the answer is sobering and striking. Here it is, verse 2. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Who are these fools who deny God? Who are these sinners who even their good works are tainted by sin? Well, it's every single person here. God looks down from heaven on all mankind. That's one. To see if there are any who understand. That's two. Any who seek God. That's three. All have turned away. That's four. All have become corrupt. That's five. There is no one who does good. That's six. Not even one. That's seven. Seven times the psalmist emphasizes that just in case you think this is somebody else's problem, it's not. It's yours. So the first truth is that unrighteous people distance themselves from God. The second truth is that every person here is an unrighteous person. It's striking to me to look at what God is doing in these verses. And then look at what people have done in these verses. Now the psalmist emphasizes seven times that we're talking about. Uh, every person here. But then there's another thing that's happening in the language and the grammar. God is doing something in the present tense. And people have done something in the past tense. God, and God is doing something active. He's pursuing. And the people continue or have pushed away. Listen to this. God looks down from heaven. This is going on right now present tense on all mankind to see if there's any who understand any who seek God but all have turned away it's already happened the door is closed 
all have become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. This says that for sinful human beings, uh, it's over. The heart's already turned away. It's a done deal. The heart is turned away from God. Depravity has taken over. Done. But God is still actively searching, actively pursuing. This says something to us about the nature of God, about the goodness of God. You know, there's very often in the religious systems of the world, and in our own system, we think about the way that God or the gods interact with the unrighteous. And God or the gods or whatever the religious system has on top has to keep uh, the imperfect, the unrighteous, the not good enough away. To keep it down. To keep themselves separate. But we see here that this God, the God of the Bible, is coming down, is looking, is searching. And it's the people, the sinful people that are saying, away, enough. We'll close the door. That's important. Also, this reminds us that when we consider the evil in the world, some of the things we just prayed for, Evil in the world, our nation, our cities, our families. We have a tendency to point fingers at other people. We have a tendency to point fingers at other countries. We have a tendency to point fingers at political parties. Point fingers at different socioeconomic groups, different ethnic groups, ideological groups, and say it's their problem. But these verses tell us that our fingers should be pointed at ourselves. It's our problem. This is important for us as Christians in a world where the influence of the church is waning. It's easy for us, and many Christians do look out at the culture that's, that's, that seems to be leaving the influence of cultural Christianity at a high rate and say, say, they've forsaken us. What's wrong with them? These people, they don't, they don't like us anymore. The world has turned away from us. They're bad people. Really, our fingers should be pointed at ourselves. What are we doing wrong? Where have we sinned? Because we know we have. There's a famous story. Some people say it's true. Some people say it's not true. I don't know. I wasn't there. But either way, it's a beautiful story. Another 19th century story. The famous British Essayist, philosopher, author G.K. Chesterton. I think I've told this before, but there's a story about the London Times issuing a issuing a call for uh, people of influence to write in and answer the question, "What is wrong with the world today?" Various public thinkers, people sent in various essays with their ideas on what's wrong with the world, and G.K. Chesterton sent in a one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, a seven-word essay. It became one of the most famous, possibly apocryphal essays in the 19th century. His response to the question, what's wrong with the world today, was this. Dear sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. 
That's the kind of attitude this psalm calls us to have. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if any understand, any who see God, and all have turned away, all have become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. Okay, Pastor Charlie, this is getting pretty dark. Time to turn it around. We've got two truths here. Unrighteous people distance themselves from God. Every person is an unrighteous person. Two more things that we find in this psalm. Not really about people, but about God. Here's the first one. God stands with his people. Let me read this in order because it tells a story. Unrighteous people distance themselves from God. Every person is an unrighteous person. But God stands with his people. Listen to verse 4. Do all these evildoers know nothing? They devour my people as though eating bread. They never call on the Lord. But there they are, overwhelmed with dread. For God is present in the company of the righteous. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor. But the Lord is their refuge. In these verses, the psalmist shifts from focusing on the problem with the world to God's answer to the problem, which is that while depraved people distance themselves from God, God firmly stands with his people. We've talked about how it's people who push God away and God who comes down and looks for righteous. But here we see God standing with his people, God in the company of the righteous. The psalmist reflects on how the wicked, even though they deny God in their hearts, they see that God is with the righteous and they're afraid. This is a beautiful picture of God strengthening his community. This is supposed to bring hope. And it does. But it brings uh, something to me at least immediately much stronger than hope, which is curiosity. It should bring the question, who are these righteous people that the psalmist is talking about? Because he just spent half of the psalm doubling down uh, with in uh, fabulous superlative style, making sure we understand that every single one of us is a God-denying fool who even our best good deeds are corrected by evil and now he's talking about God standing in the community the company of the righteous protecting them and preserving them against the advance of evil in the world that's awesome but who are these righteous people well the psalmist doesn't answer this question directly. There's kind of a implicit allusion to the answer in the last verse, but he doesn't answer it directly. In fact, it mostly goes unanswered. And that's why the Apostle Paul picks it up in Romans 3 when he quotes Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. There is no one righteous, no, not one. In his letter to the church in Jerusalem, 
We read it earlier. I don't want to read it again for the sake of time. But in this section of the book of Romans, Paul is explaining to the Christians there, the church made up of Jews and Gentiles. He's explaining to them that their Jewish or Gentile affiliation, although it's beautiful, that affiliation doesn't matter in their standing with God because every person, Jew and Gentile alike, is a sinner whose heart is turned away from God. He quotes these verses alongside other verses in the Old Testament, saying that no one is righteous, no, not one. And then he goes on to talk about how no one becomes righteous by works of the law. He's talking to the Jewish people. He's saying that by nature of belonging to the right group or doing the right things, their religious or ethnic affiliation, uh, their doing good works, their church membership, those things don't bring them to God either. And then he says that the only way people become righteous, the only way sinners, and that's everybody, can become righteous is by receiving God's gift of grace. This part's worth reading. Look at Romans 3.21. Scroll up in your worship guide. Paul says this. He says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of moment through the shedding blood to be received by faith. We ask the question, who are these righteous people that God stands with if every single person's heart is turned away from God? And the answer is that God has God in coming down to pursue and to look has come all the way down in the person of Jesus Christ and offered himself as a gift, as a gift of grace, as an atoning sacrifice, so that anyone who would receive Jesus, Jew or Gentile alike, religious or irreligious alike, any person whose heart has been turned away from God, if their hearts would turn towards Jesus, then they would receive as a free gift, as a gift of grace, God's righteousness in their place. Paul is telling us that there are no righteous people, but God is righteous and God gives his righteousness as a gift to anyone who would receive Jesus Christ as as their mediator, as the atoning sacrifice. What stands out to me in this passage in Romans is that, is that Paul says, all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented his sacrifice. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. 
In Greek, the word for grace and the word for gift are the same word, charis. What Paul is saying here is that nobody can earn their righteousness. Nobody can do enough good works. Nobody can belong to the right group. Nobody's doing it right. Everybody's heart's turned the wrong way. Everybody's messed up. Everybody's vile. Everybody's corrupt. But God gives his righteousness, his purity, as a gift to anyone who would receive it because of Jesus and his work on the cross. And this sounds familiar to us. This is the gospel of grace. This is what we believe as Christians. So unrighteous people distance themselves from God. Every single person is an unrighteous person. But God stands with his people. And the last thing, giving them his righteousness as a gift of salvation. This is why the psalm ends with, oh, that salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his people, but Jacob rejoice and Israel would be glad. Zion is uh, a word that we find a lot in the Psalms. And it, it means Jerusalem or the Temple Mount Hill or the area around Jerusalem. And it brings in all the symbolism that comes with those things. Zion is God's place, God's people. God's community, God's kingdom. And salvation did come out of Zion. When God's man, Jesus Christ, died on a cross as the Lamb of God on Passover and rose from the dead to redeem his people. This psalm is a gospel psalm. And I think that's why it's repeated twice. And it's a wonderful reminder for us today of where our hope and where our salvation come from. But as we talk about how to apply this in our broken world, it's also a reminder for us today that the way we're called to live in this broken world is as people who proclaim that the hope for the world comes from Jesus and his work. But the problem with the world is not those people. It's us. And Jesus is our hope. And Jesus is the hope for anyone who would come to him. Jesus is the only hope. This should change the way we interact with our friends and neighbors. This should give us a level of humility that is unmatched. This should give us a level of confidence and boldness that is unmatched. Folks, in and of ourselves, we have absolutely nothing of value to offer this world that they don't already have. I'm speaking of us as an institution. But we do have Jesus. If we can proclaim him and everything that he gives, and if we can live out of obedience to him, as if he's really the power here and not us, that's when things will start to change. This is the answer to so many questions that we're asking. I think sometimes we think about the gospel of grace as maybe where we start, but then we need to get on with more serious things. It's the most serious thing. It's the first and the last and the middle conversation. Everything comes down to this. Everything comes down to Jesus and God's gift of grace that is Jesus for us and for the world. 
God stands in the community of the righteous. That means our church, Hope Presbyterian Church, you know what we have to offer Portland? You know what we have to offer our friends and family? We have to offer the world? God's free gift of grace, Jesus Christ. That's beautiful. Let's pray.